today. Um, a long time waiting. Really uh, so excited to be doing this one today. Um, we have Mr. Timothy Tim Kravitz. Kravitz, correct? That is correct, Lake Lenny. All right. And there's so many reasons why this show is uh, like Lenny, please no. But uh, the, um, you're so much more important, by the way, than him in my life. I just want to let you know that. Like if he was on the show right now, I'd kick him off. I would yeah. kick him off for you. Um, and everybody else that's ever been on the show. Anyways, the reason why this show is so important is you have, I guess, freed yourself. I don't know if I want to say freed yourself. That might not be the right word because that might offend other people, but you've left. Let's just say you've left, started your own, uh, started your own business, logistics, technology, HQ. And I think a lot of IT guys do that. A lot of guys start MSPs and everything, but yours is even, it's like, it's so much more big time. And, you know, we're going to get into like who you are in a second, but why don't you just take a few seconds just to let me know, um, you know, what you're doing, why it's so important, because I think I think it is a, a very big deal. Sure. Um, so um, started Logistics Technology HQ um, in March of 21 here. Oh, you got some friends behind you. <laughs> As you, know, you know, I do need to eat at the same time during these shows. Hello. This <laughs> <laughs> is real. Yeah. This, this, is, really this real. is COVID world, right? You know, you listen to my, my wife's a teacher. I got all of her stuff behind me, so I, I get it, you know. <laughs> you got fear because we have this. Do you have kids? I do. Yeah. Okay. They better be smart. Like your wife is your wife hard on them? Is she harder on your kids because she's a teacher? She's a teacher, man. She's worse than me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I would love to hear those conversations. You oh. know, really would with the yeah, kids. Yeah, Caleb, Caleb, my son is uh, he's extremely smart. He's he's a year old and he's already running circles around me. So I'm gonna have my work cut out for me. <laughs> you know, so, but as I was saying, um, logistics HQ, logistics technology HQ, um, was started this month, uh, of March of 21, um, as a response to, uh, an industry that I, I specialize in, uh, specifically, I am in the logistics space uh, known as final mile or distributive network. So, um, I was a CTO and CIO, um, for some of the largest in the country, um, specifying in distributing pharmaceuticals to um to key players so nursing homes assisted living group home hospitals doing lab pickups those type of things and uh with the covid it was uh like the nuclear bomb that went off this year and uh the good news is that um the the companies i worked for before had a lot of um a lot of talent in the c-suite around saying hey we know tech's important here's a budget go do it and that was a great thing. We were able to craft a gold standard for the industry and it became such a gold standard that, um, I decided to start my own company with the blessing of my, uh, the owners from my last company, Stein Express, who I left, um, just last month. They, uh, they said, Tim, we, we want you to be successful. And they knew it was time for me to move on, but they're actually one of my first customers. So it ends up working out pretty well where I still help them out, but they can, I could save them some money and they are, they've got the gold standard. So fast forward, why am I doing it? Um, a lot of companies um, that are out there like Stallion have come to me via LinkedIn and just through some networks that I've made over the past 10 years. And they're just saying, hey, we would love your help. We would love to, you know, understand how to make technology work for us. And uh, it kind of was for me, it was the time to say, let's go do it. And uh, for me, it was one of those things that, um, you know, money's always been a motivator for me, but I couldn't expect my company size to support a salary of what I think I'm worth. And it wasn't, I think there was a lot of offers that I got from bigger corporations to get it. It was just more of, do I want to stay within the typical day to day, um, you know, mentality or take all the skills that I've cultivated and made over the, the years and go out and do it for myself finally and work for myself. And, uh, I've always had the entrepreneurial spirit. I wanted to make it happen. I just didn't have the money or the backing to go do it. So I literally, Full disclosure, I took my 401k, I threw it on red, and I'm hoping it hits. And, uh, you know, that's where I'm at. I'm so glad you mentioned that, too, because I've upset so many financial planners. (laughs) I've literally had them say, say, I'm washing my hands of you. I can no longer speak to you. (laughs) 
it's one of those things that you know, you do what you got to do. But at the same time, I, I look at it, and you can't get a small business loan. So this is the, the the funny thing, right? So I couldn't even go get a small business loan, even with perfect credit. And uh, they pretty much said, like, well, you have to be in business for two years, and you have to be a W two employee. How are you making a business if you're working for someone else? Especially if not in in our roles, if you have non competes and non solicitations, how can you even do it? You'd be in breach of that. Now you can be sued, and you're not even started. So it was just like it's almost like a. It was, they kind of do this in a way to almost pigeonhole you. And you know, for me, I just went. You know what? I'm not going to stand for it anymore. And I'm going to go and put it on red. And the good news is that I've already landed um, a, a few customers within the first few weeks of the company opening, and they're actually going to pay for my salary and more um, in my yearly contracts that I've established. So that just kind of goes to show that, like, you know. Yeah, it's fearful, but you got to believe in yourself and you got to go do it. And I'm doing it. And I've always said to my wife, I said, I can always get a job. I've got the skills. I've got the background. I know what I can make. But there is a there is a threshold. And it, ironically, I know that the CTO and the CIO today will be the CEO of the future. I just don't know. I just, I think it's still about six or seven years behind. And for where I'm at in my career trajectory, I don't want to wait for that. So I'd rather go and start my own business, go and help pull an entire industry forward, become the subject matter expert, and really kind of do two things. Give the opportunity to smaller business owners like mine, like myself now, right? The ability to get better technology working for them, but do it at a price that they can afford. And then ultimately, what does that do? It creates almost like a lobbying group for our industry, which has really been distributed for many years. We've got a lot of broken processes, a lot of underdeveloped applications like legacy systems that haven't been touched for years that prevent us from going into the future of AI and things. So if I now can go to a software vendor and say, listen, I represent a hundred couriers who are asking you for this. They're going to want to listen a lot more than just like, Hey, I'm a courier that's forward thinking mm. and you're going to build this custom thing and completely derail your development cycle for just me. Like there, you, you, that's where technology stunts because all they're trying to do VCs, all they're trying to do now is just pump into the next cash cow that can make it happen quick. Mm. And that's it. Or for us, it's a special use case. You need to essentially set a standard that we need to go to. So that's kind of how I'm starting to cultivate my my customers and ultimately get that leveraging power, hopefully, maybe by the end of next year, and start really helping with the industry forward with some strategic partners. And uh, and that's the goal. So <clears throat> we got to get back to that. Yeah. Uh, and I want you to think, first of all, because here's what came to mind when you said that. What came to mind to me was vendors uh, coming in and saying, hey, we can sell you this new ERP or this new CRM or XYZ and uh, we'll be able to solve all your problems and it'll be great and we'll do it all in eight months. And what I got from you was that that's not realistic and it's also not conducive to the uniqueness or the vision and um, mission of any particular company. Correct. It's, you know, everybody wants to sell the next ERP system, right? It, oh, look, I'm fancy. I'm on AI. I've got all these cool things, right? But unless you have the the ecosystem that supports it, you're not there. And you're going to spend a lot of money for something that's going to give you half of the half of what they're promising. And that's, you know, case in point in my, in my world, right? I, I specialize and I'm, um, I'm a strategic partner with eCourier and that system's been around since 99, right? It looks like it's from 1999, but the functionality is extremely robust. They've got 25, you know, 30 years of building use cases, right? So now you fast forward and they're trying to throw in eCourier, they're trying to throw in these new AI, you know, look at all the AI do, but guess what? You're going to spend three times the amount of money, but you don't have the data to populate the AI that makes it work, right? So it's one of those so from a, why would you do it? From an IT leader's standpoint, so to to make sure that we're, we're, we're keying in on the key points, because it doesn't need to be, for everyone out there listening, it doesn't need to be logistics. It doesn't need to be, yeah. it can yeah. be anything, right? From an IT leadership standpoint and from a leadership standpoint, so the advice is to both people, right? <clears throat> what is the advice to the IT leader, like, I don't know, don't be lazy, be creative, find a way to, to make the solution work or, you know, cause there's a lot of people out there and 
I kind of have this nightmare every now and then. It's more of a nightmare or an argument in my head that I have in the shower when you're arguing with someone. And it's kind of like, you don't just, you know, take responsibility. Don't just hire the vendor and throw everything on the vendor and then, you know, hope that that's necessarily going to make your life better. Right. Like, take some responsibility. Like, yes, make the, the vendor do what they say they're going to do. Make sure you pick the right vendor, all that type of stuff. But I see people pick the wrong vendor just because that vendor just because they don't want to do the work. So they pick the wrong vendor because that vendor is going to do X, Y, Z, and they won't have to deal with it anymore. But that's not the right decision for the company because the product is not going to do what they need it to do, or it's not going to benefit them. It's not going to fit their bottom line. But in, in the case in point is a phone system. And I'm just using this as an example. So someone might have an old PBX on site, right? And they're used to the truck roll PBX vendor guy. They're used to him you know, um, coming out, logging into the PBX, making the changes or logging in remotely or rolling a truck whenever there's something wrong and they don't have to deal with it anymore, right? And the phone system does what? It makes a call, it receives a call, paging, whatever else, all the old school advanced phone features, right? Which, um, you know, maybe there's some presence, there's a couple other things. But why does the IT director renew the agreement on that? He renews the agreement on that because he doesn't have to deal with it right now. He just has to pay the bill. But what would be the better choice for him? It might be an omni-channel. It might be a full Teams integration. It might be all these other things, but he doesn't do it. Why? Because he's going to have to manage. He's going to have to manage it now. Well, he might not have to, but how hard is it really to like manage, you know, I don't know, you know, a bunch of, you know, add voice onto your, onto your, you know, your, your already existing um, tenant anyways. Uh, but the point is, is, you know, at the end of the day, he's like, nah, I'm just going to pay this phone vendor another, uh, I don't know, 80 grand and call it a day because uh, I don't want to deal with it. Right. Um, that's to me just a small example in my world. That's how you find yourself out of an IT job very quickly. So, you know, if you think about it, right. And, but, but here's the thing though, is now, so that's the, that's the IT leader. So what's the advice to the IT leader, but then there's also the leadership. Right. So the leadership might be completely clueless of and what's going are. on. Most are, most are, most are not technical. They're not tech, right? But what I'll tell you is that it's shifting. You know, there's more millennials now getting into the C-suite. It's starting. And as that goes, the um, that attention to detail is going to be critical. And I've been fortunate enough to work with some more forward-thinking Gen Xers and, and boomers, right, that, you know, are in the that level. And we're going, listen, you know, the tech's got to work for us. What are you doing? How is it impacting my business? What's, you know, what's the ROI on it? And and quite frankly, that's the, that's the piece that, IT leaders now need to, to look at. It's not just, I have a break-fix problem anymore. That's that's going to happen, right? It's how does the technical strategy impact the bottom line of the business? How does it create efficiencies within the business? How does, does you know, can you provide reporting to make decisions? Because that's what they need. Reporting on all of the analytics, everything that people talk about that they want, that's all pre-dependent on your ecosystem and of your suite of applications and how you design them and your workflow and your output. Are they streamlined? And, and quite frankly, a lot of um, jobs that, you know, you needed someone there to push paper, like for bills and things like that, you could automate a lot of that now. So if you think about it, right, the, the, the future that everybody talks about where jobs are getting cut and they're trying to find ways to, to save money, that's happening now. And the, the biggest advice I can give is, is when you're talking to your C-suite, You've got to be able to qualify the decision you made on not just cost, but how does it solve the problem and how does it interrelate to your ecosystem? Is it going to make it better? Is it going to disrupt service? Is it going to disrupt your internal workflows? And that's the, that is the due diligence that isn't done. And like you mentioned before with the phone system, Phil, it was you throw it over the wall. Hey, here's, here's a vendor. Go do it. Now you have no institutional knowledge. You have no way that you've crafted it to make it specialized for your business. And that is a flawed approach in tech. You've got to be the strategic thinker. You've got to essentially anticipate what the what they don't know. <laughs> and I, I kind of use this term with my team was, you got to know what you don't know. And that's kind of how it is with the C-suite. You need to know going in, they're not going to understand what you're saying. You cannot make this a high tech conversation. You got to be able to translate. You're going to spend this amount of money and you're going to get this back in a in a very simple manner. If they want to go and understand it more because they're inquisitive and they're a more tech-centric C-suite person, great. But don't 
kill them with tech. And that's what a lot of techs have a problem with is they go hyper tech and then the glass eyes go over and then the C-suite goes, I don't see it. You know? What if it's, um, see, I, I think sometimes it's the opposite too. I think sometimes the, uh, the, the, the IT director, IT manager goes and kind of downtrodden already thinking they need to speak dumb or already thinking that it's only about money and like it's about the budget and saving money and everything like that. And we got to, you know, it's got to be down to the penny, which, in, which I think ironically, you know, like a lot of times it is. And I say ironically just because people are always sell on value, sell this, it's about value, it's about return on investment. Yeah, but sometimes it really is about, you know, like, you know, the budget line item. But equivocate, like, oh. right? Equivocate it. You got to say, <laughs> hey, listen, this could be a, this could be a, 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 an actual cost multiplier or it could be a revenue multiplier depending on how you, you look yeah. at it. And, you know, that's the thing, right? You can say things are costs, and, and uh, an executive team is always going to look at IT as the necessary evil, right? I got to pay this to keep my my lights on. But if you can show that for every dollar you're spending is working for you, then you've you've got the right, you know. I, yeah, I don't think it's that they don't get technology. I think it's that you just need to speak it in their language. Correct. And then and then you know they're not you know because most likely you know they're they're pretty darn smart and maybe smarter than many of us in, in many ways. Um, but you just need to speak like, even like, like my 85 year old father, he's a retired doc, doctor. He's, he, he, he got his, uh, his AOL got hacked this week. And, uh, wow, that's a, that's a whole, hey, I was gonna say AOL. wow. Yeah, <laughs> AOL, <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. Um, so that gives you like an idea of like kind of where I'm coming from this, but when, but for the most part though, for an 85 year old guy, you know, he's got an iPad, he's got his desktop, he's got, you know, he's still using all the technology. He's just using it the way that he wants to use it. Um, so, uh, it's just a matter of, you know, sometimes it's like a matter of education or in his case, it's just a matter of, you know, password memory, um, to be quite honest. Uh, that's the biggest, that's the biggest problem. Um, okay. So moving on we, what's really exciting well, I don't know if I'd say exciting. That's the wrong word. But your kind of your story growing up, I think how you got into technology to me is uh, is fascinating. Yeah, it was. Uh, um, where do you like? How do you start out? Like, what was your kind of like early or like? If I asked you, what's your your earliest memory of technology? What what pops in your mind? Oh my god, I think of the uh, I think of Oregon Trail and you know MS DOS. You know, yeah. uh, you know, like what is it? Windows ninety five. You know, everything maybe like pre DOS into Windows ninety five type of thing. My father had it in the basement, you know, and uh-huh. put the floppy in. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oregon Trail is sitting on top of my fireplace right now. I had to rip it out of my kid's kid's hand last night. And you know what it is? It's like the fifteen dollar handheld that I bought from Target. Did you have you seen that? There's an Oregon Trail handheld now. Like you know how they have like the cheap oh. things that you plug into the TV with two hundred games on it. This one's like an Oregon Trail handheld. Like, so, do we have it? I was like, I can't believe this exists. I li- had to rip it out of my my like uh, six year old's hand last night. But anyways, yeah. Um, so like, I remember you know going through that. I mean, I love you know the Playstations and the N sixty fours. I've always loved technology. Um, I was big into Legos and Connects, like the engineering. I've always had an engineering mind growing up, uh-huh. and, and I loved it. And uh, I got to school, and um, you know, I was never really good at theoretical math. So like after Calc one. I just wasn't my thing. And that's where like super great programmers that are that abstract and thinking they do very well there for me, I can do a lot of it, but you know, I found this, uh, you know, as I was in college, I went to Rhone university in, in New Jersey and I was, I was down there and, you know, I started, and I said, you know, what am I good at? And I wasn't quite sure what my path was going to be. Um, I loved law and justice. My families uh, were all retired cops, lawyers. Right. Um, mm. That's going to be interesting around the around the table right now when you go yeah. home. That's going to be interesting conversations watching the news and stuff. Yep. So, so you know, uh, you know, I had that right, and then I also uh-huh. had, um, you know, uh, I had that background. Plus, I also had a, a business sense. You know, I had uh, grandparents that owned their own business, and I've always had that entrepreneurial spirit. So I was like, you know what? I think I would like to do corporate law, and I really like technology. And because of the, how fast technology was going, I figured, hey, you know, technical law. And going into that would be my, maybe my niche, right? And that's when I got into school, I decided to dual major in business and law. And I had a concentration in IT um, when I was there. And I graduated with, uh, you know, with those degrees. 
Um, but during that time, I had the opportunity to intern with um, with the Camden County Prosecutor's Office, and uh, it was kind of me getting into the law enforcement side of my my interest and my family. And uh, they actually brought me in to do technological things. Um, this isn't the the nicest thing to talk about. It's a kind of a taboo to talk about. But I used to uh, infiltrate the uh, the bad people of the world from a technology space. So who would that be? That would be um, underground, um, you know, channels for child pornography, for, um, you know, drugs, weapons, pretty much. How long the, the, just because I have eight kids, but the, the child pornography ring, yeah. how long, um, how long can you actually, does that, how long can you work a job like that? Even can you even work it a day? Like how long before that, like psychologically Honestly, takes a toll? case in point, Phil, it's why I got out of it, right? It's yeah. why I got into business and technology and its thing is, you know, I spent about two and a half years in there, about two and a half, three years doing it. Um, and it was a way to obviously cultivate my skills from a technology standpoint because, yeah. How were you catching people back then? Um, so back then you had the shareware was a big place. So that was um, Kazaa, Shakespeare, Napster, Winamax, um, you know, all the the you know the torrenting sites that you know you yep. would, you would use they didn't like how would people hide it? like i don't understand like how would people hide stuff like that on a torrenting site or did they not even hide it at all and they were just thinking some, there's no way to track me because you know at the time you have to realize this was you know 14 15 years ago so you know the technology wasn't where it is today the understanding the institutional knowledge of tech wasn't there you had a bunch of guys in the in the prosecutor's office going what the hell is this we don't know how to use it you know, the FBI gave us some tools, but we've never been trained. We don't know how to use it. So us tech centric, you know, we're the first, I'm the oldest millennial, right? So we were the first like ones to get technology in our hands. They said, Hey, you guys do this, come and help us. And we did. So we would pose as, you know, in the chat rooms as the, as, you know, as a child, or you would, you know, you would, you would do these different things to start kind of baiting and getting enough probable cause and evidence to then go through the next um, layers of, 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 you know, essentially taking out rings. And back then we didn't have the tools that they have today, but back then you so, had to really do the work. You had to, you actually had to monitor and uh -huh. IP addresses. And the goal was to always find the kingpin who's distributing it. Right. So you might find someone that was viewing it, but then uh -huh. you would try to connect that dot. It's almost like the Rico loss with the mafia, right? You get the little guy, but you ultimately want to try to find where it goes. Right. And you got to do these tracings. Well, some of these guys were sophisticated, right? They had, you know, um, they had server redirects. They had, um, <laughs> they had different network topologies to help kind of keep you off the trail. Um, and it took a long time. And most people- Were like, they using any like public spaces, like libraries or something or weird stuff like that? I'm just schools, curious. Schools. Uh-huh. Libraries. Starbucks. You know, it, it could be anywhere. Their personal house. But most um, would try to do it in their house just because they were always afraid. Right. But ultimately, um, you know, they would spoof networks and stuff like we, we had a warrant. We had a new knock order that we got and they actually knocked down a nine year old lady's house. It was someone that, you know, hacked into their network and was relaying off of them. So uh -huh. like, these are the type of things that we had to go through. But you have to do the work to try to find them. And um, it took it, it took over a year. People don't know this. And this is still affected today. If you see in the news that someone got taken out for that, they didn't just find it in one day and go they actually established the hash values and all of the things that you need to be part of the evidence to take someone out like that. That takes over a year and it's going to be damning. They're going to have a mountain of data. And what people don't know about um, the technology is it's more admissible and it has more credibility in the courts than DNA because it's a science. Like knowing that you went to that site in your computer with the forensics, it's, yeah. it's insane what we can do. And that's what I used to do. I used to have to not only you know, help them find it, um, get the investigators the information so that they can go and make the case to the judge and say, listen, we got to go and get this person. And mm -hmm. the key was, you know, we had to know that there was enough smoke for there to be fire. They would go and we would take the computers and we were pretty good. Once we had them, you knew what you're going to find in those hard drives. And that's when it got really nasty um, for me. But, you know, you have to essentially look at every photo every single disgusting thing you would see and you'd have to doctor it. And there was only one level that you could, um, 
use, you know, in the courts because you would be re-victimizing the child. So we actually have to doctor it. You would have to put in a description of what you're seeing in the photo, and you would have to then make that available to both uh, the defense and the prosecutor. And that, you know, looking at that and having to do that piece of the work is kind of what threw me off. And it's where I give people that do that stuff today a ton of credit. And I, I, it is, it is a thankless job. It is one of those type of jobs where you just go, how long can one person do it? And I could tell you, it took me two and a half years. My wife will tell you, you know, we were dating at the time and it changed me. I mean, I became very callous, very just negative. And it's why I can see why cops become how they become over the years is if all you see is the worst of the worst every day. What do you expect the world to be? And that's where for me, um, you know, it, it gave me a lot of skills that let me learn what I wanted out of life and what I wanted out of technology and where my career is going to go. Um, but it showed me where I don't want to go. And uh, that kind of pushed me out of the law enforcement track and kind of pushed me back into the business track. And uh, I got to ask you, I got to ask some questions. Sure. Because okay. everyone's going to want to, everyone's, I mean, first of all, the people that you guys caught. Oh, yeah. Are they easily you walking down the street right now? Can you look at someone and be like, oh, yeah, there's something wrong with him? <laughs> there are certain key there factors, are, like, tick, like things, weird things. things. Yeah, like what? Like, um, you know, recluse, you know, kind of um, typically, right? This is the stereotype, right? Is you typically would profile this person as, hey, they're, you know, they're a recluse, right? They don't really go out much. Um, you don't really see them dating much. Um, they might not have many friends, right? They're typically the person in the back of the room nobody wants to see. They're usually very kind of like almost like a meek minded. That's that's typically what you would think and see. That's what the movies portray. But uh, <laughs> it's not. It's it's literally um, it's a different way of your brain processing what makes you go. And this is why you see it in the churches, right, with the Catholic Church that happened. You know, to anybody in just the normal day to day. I mean, the ring that we took. Who are the guys you caught? Who are the guys you caught? Like, let's just go through like the. Like, who are they? Two pediatricians. Oh God. Two principals. Okay. A judge, a lawyer, and um, and you also had a couple um, just like high standing executives, like people of status, right? Educated, well to do. It wasn't some you know some guy in you know. In, a, you know, in the gutter somewhere that you would expect. And uh, that's the honest truth is that it was, um, you just don't know. And you'd be surprised on how, when things come up, people are like, you have no idea when, you know, sometimes the patterns will kind of make themselves known, but you just go, I would never know. And what people don't know about this is, you know, you, you know, it makes me extremely angry to see these people, but what people don't know, and when you've been in this arena and you learn what kind of made this happen, a lot of people that are doing this have been victimized as small children. They typically were a product of abuse and are now acting on, on that, that old abuse. So not all, but that's typically the pattern you see is that they were abused as a child. They are, and this is psychological, right? You know, they know that you are stunted in that, in that arena. And you're, you're stunted at that age, essentially, when you got abused, you know. So now that's how you value love. That's how you are, you know, motivated sexually. Those are the things that you look for. And, uh, you know, and it just kind of goes to show, right? You know, you had pediatricians, you had judges, you had all these people that were in a ring that got taken out. And it, it, these are all people that were products of that. And like I said, it's a, it's a sick world. <laughs> but when you're in it, you understand, you understand more of why, you know, and granted it, to me, it's worse than murder. Right. But at the, because it's a, it's a crime that keeps on repeating. Right. And, uh, you know, I had to see, you know, 20 people take the stand for this guy that abused him and half of them were dead overdoses, drugs, the other were there. So, you know, it's a dark thing we're talking about here. And this is where, you know, I like to say, you know, for me, I just, I could not do that every day. And for the people that can, I give them so much credit. And this is one when the cops are getting screamed at and all that. Granted, listen, there's problems. There's problems all over the world. But I tell people, yeah. you got to give these guys a break, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that you don't see every day that they do. And I can tell you there's some pretty sick people in this world. Just be thankful that you're not seeing it on your YouTube every day. Or it's your child that could be getting victimized, right, because they're keeping them off the road. So show the, show the love where you can. And like I said, for me, it was one of those experiences that I will – you know, be grateful for that I had. I'm not grateful for what I had to see and experience, but it taught me a lot in my early career of, hey, 
this is not what I want to do. And you know, I'm pretty sure for you, you've talked to punch people. Um, you know, wouldn't it suck to get down the road 15 years and be like, I hate this. Why did I do this? Why, why I got here? I'm thankful that I had that experience to go, you know what? Course correction needs to happen. Let's go this direction now. I do wonder. <clears throat> yeah, I do wonder. I think there's a certain thing to be, there's a certain, a certain thing to be said about just being thankful for having food on the table and running water and hot water. And there's a lot of things that, you know, I, I, I travel, um, and there's, uh, uh, some guys I was talking about talking with, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, locked up in an Egyptian jail. And uh, I was talking with about like 20 Palestinian guys. And I mean, I was thrown in there just pu on pure suspicion. I completely understand why the, why the police do the things that they do in, in various different areas of the world. <laughs> um, uh, with that being said, um, you know, I was in there with like some, you know, PH, some guy that had a master's degree in architectural engineering. And uh, he's a Palestinian dude that, you know, takes a flight into Cairo and there's no way to get over the border into the Gaza Strip without, you know, a bus taking him there. So the police hold him there so that he doesn't do it at night where it's dangerous. And then they drop him off and, you know, the morning he was there with like 20 other people and I was talking to him I was like are you married you have kids and he's like no why would I want to bring kids into this world yeah and uh, I was like why he's like he's like yeah he's like I mean and it like quick you know quickly like you're saying your your problems of wondering whether you're going to get home to your wife and kids again and hold your kids again quickly kind of disappear <clears throat> even though that was the reality he uh he said we, he's like, you know, we have running water. We have electricity for maybe four hours of the day. We don't really know, you know, running water, things like this. All these kind of like basic necessities, you know what I mean? That um, you start to think, you know, like even like even the general like regular person in America that might be, you know, really struggling or fighting over toilet paper or whatever we're fighting over, you know, um, has running water and electricity. Yeah. Some don't. Some I mean, you're right. Not everybody even has that in our country, but we have stability. We, you know, we have, we have all the, the infrastructure, you know, yeah. be thankful of that same thing for security, government, all that. Yeah. It sucks. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we're in a lot better off places than most. And that's a hard thing to see when all you've seen is our bubble for a long time. Yeah. Um, taking a few minutes for anyone that likes listening to this show, um, please, uh, the four major, drivers of traffic, uh, if you didn't know this, are Google, um, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. Believe it or not, those are the four major drivers of marketing traffic in this world. And the number one driver of podcast traffic is Apple. So if you have a few seconds, please just Google Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. The first thing that's going to pop up is uh, Apple or you know whatever it is, iTunes, whatever. Please go to the podcast, scroll down, and give us your honest review of what you think of the show. That would be much appreciated. And a shout out to, this is the first day we're recording on Microsoft Teams. I found a flaw in Zoom. And in Zoom, I cannot use a mixing board and sound effects because it recognizes it as a background noise and <clears throat> mutes it out like halfway. So I get this weird glitchy thing. And in the middle of this meeting, I actually X'd out of... Microsoft Teams by mistake because I didn't want to get email notifications and Tim was still talking when I came back on and the meeting was still recording. So if there's no break in the audio, then th there's another plus to yep. Microsoft Teams. I was wondering if that happens either. <laughs> <laughs> so it said this meeting is being recorded still in progress. So, uh, you know, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see after this. I hope I really hope there's no break. Um, <clears throat> so moving on from from child pornography policing busting the sickest people in the world um where'd you go from there um and how do you I, how do you drive that job rent -a -car. i went to pollyanna i went to enterprise rent-a-car they gave you a <laughs> boss you know oh man <laughs> enterprise rent-a-car is the beginning for so many people and this is such a it's such a positive change you know some people are kind of laughing because i know there's people out there that have worked for enterprise rent-a-car you either worked for enterprise rent-a-car you worked for starbucks or you worked for c beyond for any of you c beyond guys out there that remember that or you worked for whatever that door-to-door -door company was that was sold like office supplies why can i not remember the name oh, of that company it was like skull or scroll or something why can i not remember that or oh vector marketing you sold cutco knives you know what i mean so go. the fact that you went to enterprise 
which is a great opportunity for some people, believe it or not. But just about anyone, I think, can get a job at Enterprise, but not everyone can be successful at Enterprise. Right. That's well, the key. you have to go through a pretty rigorous, you know, interview process to start. But uh, you know, Enterprise, I, I'm very thankful for that experience. You know, they, at, you know, I'm ripe out of college, right? You know, you need experience, and they literally throw you into the arena very quickly. And you know, it, it's essentially what I call my MBA, right? So. For me to go from, you know, the, the management trainee to, um, you know, a branch manager of Philadelphia Airport doing a merger between National and Alamo and doing systems there um, and doing that in a three-year time frame, that doesn't normally happen in most places. And and for me, right, it was one of those type of things that, you know, enterprise rated you on a matrix. So if you hit certain performance scores, sales, all these different things, you would kind of move through the ranks. And um, what it did was is it gave me experience at a young age to manage a lot of people, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of money in certain cases, right? Um, and, you know, essentially they entrust you with running the branch. And it's literally like running your own business. So I, you know, I'm doing that now, right, for myself. But it really gave me a taste of what ownership looked like. And what it kind of taught me earlier on is that I needed I needed more experience after that, right? Um, but for me, it was out of necessity, Phil. I, I started there because um, self-made, didn't have to pay for schooling and I needed a job. I literally walked on a Friday from college and I started with enterprise after the weekend on that Monday and just went right, right into work. And, uh, from there it was uh, a really cool trajectory. Um, I, I got my business acumen, a lot of training from enterprise. They give a, a amazing training, um, for management trainees around, um, they you know they do personality assessments. They do the disc set. They actually, you know, they teach you how to have finesse, and I find that most IT people don't have that, Phil, is that finesse, that that training around how you relate to people. You know, you might be an introverted person, but then you might have a very bombastic CEO. How do you relate to them? You need to be able to understand, recognize personalities and know how to manage and cultivate relationships, even though it might be counter to what you like or who you are. And that's going to be what you're going to experience through your entire career. Whether you own a company or not, you're going to have those. So recognizing that, you know, yeah. training around enterprise was so valuable. And I, and I still use a lot of those skills that I learned there today. Yeah. One of the best things that anyone can do for themselves is completely throw them into, throw themselves into one of the most uncomfortable situations they've ever been in. And you have to make it work in order to survive oh, and put money on the enterprise table. Enterprise does that, right? They, they, they definitely do it. I mean, they give you shoestring budget and shoestring you know, employee I mean, yeah. and go figure it out. I mean, I can't tell you how many ties I've had sucked up in a vacuum or different parts <laughs> of the suit. Right? This is before, like, enterprise is very conservative, right? So you have to be in a suit every day. Now they've relaxed. Now you can wear a polo and you can actually have a beard now. So oh. I can do what you can do, Phil. But, uh, you know, um, ultimately the, uh, the enterprise experience kind of set me on the business track and, and I really fell in love with it. And, and ironically I did when they bought national and Alamo, uh, oh. I was, part of the pilot program of integrating the different systems. And that's really where I was like, you know, they're like, you're good with this stuff. You're good with technology. I'm like, yeah, I always have been. I have this background and it really kind of reinvigorated me going into tech again. Um, and I actually, you know, found a job. So I got hired by a company um, right after enterprise. It was a small MSP um, called Kukua Technologies in Marlton. And they were a startup and it was, like a typical startup, right? It was a boys club. It was awesome. I mean, we had a great time, but it, it, it gave me a lot of experience around sales engineering, product management, solution design. This is when 365 just came out and a lot of people are going from on-prem exchange to 365 and converting the world to that. Did a ton of those projects. So mm-hmm. it, gave, it gave us a lot of experience around how to, um, you know, what makes all these businesses tick. So I was able to do... Um, to work with Kukua, um, left there, there was some, you know, unfortunately some issues with ownership at the top, you know, partnership that was dissolving wasn't so good. So I would have probably been there still for a long time. Um, but that kind of forced my hand to look at what's next. So, um, that actually put me into the software track. I got hired by a company called EDI but, Systems. Let's just a break real quick, yeah. because I want everyone listening to this. Cause a lot of the things that there's, there's certain kind of, there's it guys that are like, like okay with like sales reps and there's people that aren't okay with sales reps and there's people that are positive vendor, negative vendor. I don't know. There's just kind of mix of just people in general. And I think one of the key pieces to your success here is any type of job that threw you into kind of like 
the sales and business development aspect where you were kind of like forced to understand how the business worked, forced to actually make something happen and feel that pressure of a sales budget. There's a difference, there's a difference between a sales budget and a kind of quota, I guess you could say, versus an IT budget. Because an IT budget's like, okay, this is what I have to work with. How can I ask for more? But you, they're not going to ask for more if you don't have that sales experience. Whereas with the sales experience, you're like, man, I really got to make something out of nothing. Correct. I got to go out. And we say that every day, you know, you got to go make something out of nothing. If you're not being told no, uh, at least three times a day, you're doing something wrong. You know, a lot of people can't deal with that kind of that rejection, it seems depressing to them, but it's not once you kind of gain that self-confidence and go out and really know that like, hey, you're doing something to keep the wheels of economy of the economy turning. You're not trying to force something on someone that they don't want. You're just helping someone find a solution to a problem that they have, uh, i.e. no car to get home or whatever it was. Um, so I just, that, that experience, if anyone doesn't have that is so valuable and I just don't know what the suggestion would be for someone that's maybe later on in their career on how to get that. Honestly, I mean, being part of the sales engineering. So, you know, a lot of times for me, right, for new sales opportunities, I was brought in as the CIO and CTO to help validate what they're selling. So, Mm -hmm. you know, for us, we did, it was very customized, right? So when we would come into a pharmacy or to a customer, we would have to know what pharmacy system they're using. How do you relate data? Can we integrate? What's your processes? So we had to do a six-week deep dive um, just around discovery, how we're going to change it. Because remember, when we were doing a startup, this wasn't a transactional-based sale. It wasn't like, here's a hot dog. I pay for the hot dog. Enjoy the hot dog, right? This is a very long sales cycle, very complex. And remember, we have patients' lives on the end of it. So you, know, you got to get it right. There, the failure is not an option. So coming in and helping the sales engineering team, you know, if you have that opportunity in your world to just sit in the room or be part of it, right, it gets you experience and gets you talking and understanding what your stakeholders are going to ask of you, right? What are the pain points of the customer? Because that's what sales guys are going to leverage, right, is these are the pains our customer sees, and we want to be able to provide a solution to that pain. So. If you can be exposed to that, great. You know, there's also some good books around sales as well. But I would always say, you know, getting in the arena is so much better than just reading a theoretical book or, you know, yeah, you can listen to some podcasts, right? And that'll get you somewhere. But actually doing the work, getting in, immersing yourself, that's going to net you the most training because now you've done it. Now you've made it a memory that you can recall on how I've articulated this sale with the sales team. And IT is going to become more and more involved in that and days to come because you have to. Everything is so integrated now. You cannot, you cannot get into a business level relationship if it's a B two B like I was in and still am. You can't get into those relationships unless you're doing this. And if you're, afraid you of- can't overcome. Like you will never experience such elation and success until someone has told you no like five times, and then finally they're like, "Okay, you're right. We we do need this." Um, you know what I mean? Like the first thing uh, you need to expect that someone's always going to tell you no the second you come to them. It's like the first time you ask for a raise and the boss kind of laughs. He's like, no. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I remember I asked for a raise in my first job that was dishwashing. I was like, hey, um, you know, could I, um, you know, maybe I've been here for a while and, you know, I'm pretty good and, you know, could I get a raise? Uh, no. <laughs> well, no, you're worth, but I always say this to IT people, right? So my friends that are directors and stuff like that, I always say to them, you know, you're a number on the balance sheet, right? Are you 3x that number? Because that's what a CEO is going to look at. And if you're doing extreme performance, you're bringing the business, you're helping with sales, bring in more money. These are things that you can cite when you're asking for that raise or you're trying to, you know, get more, right? And that's how I was able to move through my career path, you know, pretty quickly um, and get to the C-suite, you know, at an early age in my, you know, in my 30s by able, by using that method, right? And, and really just honing in on the fact that know your worth, but Prove it. Back it up. If I can go and say, look, look at all the things that I was able to do for you and accomplished. I was able to equivocate this in sales. I was able to help reduce your cost per month. I was able to reduce this headcount to drive efficiencies. These are all things that are going to make you valuable to an owner. And if you can articulate that, you can write your ticket. It's the ones that can't that I find that just go, oh, I'm going to be the lazy tech guy. You know, like, as you mentioned, the path of least resistance. Let me just throw in an application, you know. 
the users got a little bit what they needed. It's 60% deployed. Okay. Right. Well, let's talk that's about not, that then. That's not going to get you where you want to be. What are say like the top five areas that if you can solve, make you more, make you invaluable or more, you know, valued, valued more than what you're getting paid. So, you know, obviously showing the worth of the dollar being spent in tech, right? It's not just like, oh my God, our ISP cost X amount of month, right? If you're able to get a reduction, right? And help out a, a company, take those dollars and put them into a marketing budget now that they could free up or things like that. Those are things that you got to work. How do we, hey, just out of curiosity, how do we do that? How do we get a reduction on our ISP costs? Uh, I think there's a guy named Phil here that actually helps with that, which is who, who I've partnered with as well, which is helping me right now with my new customer. Just, so, I, I think we yeah. happen to, I've reduced that by 75% miraculously overnight. I agree. Now. I said that. Well, and, and that's the thing, right? but based on, but here's the thing, right? With this skill that I mentioned here, right? I came and I'm helping, you know, customers that have never really had a, a director or, or a CIO there. And I'm going, you're spending how much? This is nuts. And I just told <laughs> Don't the, mention I, any numbers. Don't mention any numbers. I won't, you know? I won't, we'll just mention well, 75%. Saying, just numbers and you go, what? <laughs> like, this is a robbery. And this is where, you know, you look at where CEOs and owners get pissed off at tech is because they see such a high value. But if, I'm, if, you're, if they know that they've got the right tool at the right price, right, now they look at technology as a revenue multiplier, not a cost multiplier. And that's that's the key is to change the mentality in the C-suite to showing that tech is something I need, I need, I value, which is key, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that I'm going to have work for me and I'm going to make it one of my focal points of my business. So that was basically bad spend. We got rid of bad spend. We'll, say, we'll call that point number one. Right. So get rid of the bad spend. Um, <clears throat> the next thing would be, you know, the, the unrealized ROI, right? So sometimes they just don't know how powerful these these solutions are. What are they actually getting you, right? It, you know, I call it the ivory tower effect, right? Most owners are going to have, you know, the 50,000 foot view and they just say, hey, I want this number and I want these things and not understand at the line level all the things that the technology is doing to improve those workflows. So that could mean, you know, you're able to use automation now through Microsoft Flow or one of these, all these different tools that are now available to us that we didn't have before. Now you can use that to make technology work and maybe you can reduce a headcount there, but maybe use that headcount in a better place, sales, other parts of the business that need it. So when I look at ROI, technology is going to be valuable in the eyes of an owner if it's reducing, you know, overhead in some capacity, or it's helping them get the lead position in a sale, or it's giving them um, a strategic, um, you know, uh, you know, it's giving them the, the strategic the strategic edge in the marketplace that they're in to make them stand out. So those when you say three, unrealized ROI, there are a lot of things out there that, again, getting back to you don't know what you don't know type of thing that we were talking about earlier, um, kind of a vastly thrown around term that people either love or hate. But the point is, is if you don't know there's a way to automate through technology or to provide that one extra touch point, because we all know that, uh, you know, just I like using sales as an example, right? Like salespeople like typically follow up once or twice, but every sale is made after like seven follow ups. So there's if there's like seven, eight different ways that people are following up with people in a good way, in a way that's productive, or even for your your customers or people, right? Then that could be uh, something that we well we didn't know we could touch the customer this way. We didn't know that you know I don't know. There's a Facebook pixel that we don't have on our website that could automatically send, um, I don't know, advertisements to someone's feed that they don't want in their feed, but still they they see us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. No. But, um, but that's the that's the key, right, Phil? Is that you know you look at it right? So there's the ROI component of it, but then you also got to look at this and say what what are you doing from a strategic standpoint? So like point three in this would be your strategy around how you're using your ecosystem of applications and hardware, the entire picture, right, is critical. And, you know, what I mean by that is being nimble. So in the last two companies I've been at, right, I've moved them from traditional, um, you know, on-prem servers, everything into high availability, you know, servers and, you know, web-based applications, because guess what? Now you're nimble. So if there's a better solution that comes out there, what can you do? You can bolt in to this, you know, into this ecosystem that's all web-based now because we've got cloud technology that's that good. Now you could be very nimble. So when that CEO goes says, hey, I want to get into a new vertical within our space. Okay, what does that mean? Oh, we got to do these things, these things. Now you can bring in different um, you know, components to solve that new need. 
And that happens a lot in, in the courier space, right? It's like, hey, we specialize in pharma, but now we want to get into nuclear medicine. Now we want to get into Amazon, you know, DMA, uh, you know, distributor stuff, right? I want to work with Staples, right? These things, you have to be nimble. And if you're in technology where it's just like, well, we can't do that, or that's not possible, or you're the resistance for them trying to grow the business, that's when operations and tech becomes, you know, opposed. And that's kind of the beginning of the end. And Amazon's an interesting example because Amazon can either come into town and put you out of business or, or could put you in business one way or the other. Because uh, there's a lot of logistics guys that came in and Amazon brought a warehouse in and all their workers just left to go to Amazon. And if they weren't able to switch to some sort of, I don't know, robotic workforce management, they're done. Right. And that's where my point is, is you got to, you got to understand the market forces, but you got to have a strategy around your tech so that you're lean, but you're getting the most out of it. So that would be point three there, Phil, is just know, you know, you hit that, like call it the head on a swivel, right? Make sure that you are always anticipating what's coming down the road. You got to know six steps ahead, what's going on. And just being in tech and just solving the break fix is not good enough anymore. You've got to be in touch with the industry. You got to know what's going on. You got to be involved with, you know, I'm in a lot of LinkedIn groups with CIO groups and things like that. Just seeing what they're doing, new strategies, new ways of doing things. Don't just think your strategy is the only way, right? And I've, and I've learned that time and time again. I learned this one way and it worked, but you know what? There might be a better way. And I've been fortunate to be surrounded by a lot of smart people in my life. And, you know, I, I will go to them and say, hey, have you ever done this? And just use your network. And you'd be surprised how leveraging your network can really bring you the right thing. And, uh, you know, like I was a Sigma Pi at, at Rowan, right? I use my fraternity network a lot now to help hire people out of school or using in staffing agencies, all these different ways that we profit by association with each other, you know, 10 years, 15 years out of college, we're able to help each other. My CPA is one of my fraternity brothers, right? He's a phenomenal one, but very knowledgeable. So this is what I try to tell tech people, use your network and don't be a silo. Keep your head on a swivel and, and look and you'll be fine. How do you, pre- how do you prevent that overwhelm? Because that, that can be very, someone could be listening to this right now and even just me, myself, I'm feeling like this sense of overwhelm, you know, how do you prevent that or how do you manage that? Um, you know, you got to take it in small chunks though, right? You know, you can look at all this, right? But you can't climb Mount Everest in a day. What do you have to do to climb Mount Everest? You've got to train for it, right? You've got to have experts that can take you, the Sherpa that takes you up the mountain. You need someone that's done it before, right? So you can be shown a way that works, right? You need to put in the in the work so that you don't die up on the mountain summit because you've got the things that you needed, the tools, right? The the mask and the tank and all the things to get up there. So, you know, climbing Everest is, is the is the sexy thing that you want to say, but the work that goes into doing it is something that's done incrementally. So incremental backups, do it incrementally, take it off in pieces, map out the structure, right? And then set up the plan of attack that allows you to execute that plan. And my method has always been in reverse engineering, right? So the output of reporting is usually what every every single exec wants. I want this sexy analytics. I want this. I want this. Well, guess what? All of that's dependent on your ERP systems and all the suite of software that you're using for data points and structures. Well, if your data sets are garbage and your output's garbage. So now you've got this really expensive tool that's just spinning out information that no one can trust. And now what happens? The tech doesn't work. Why are we even using it? Now you've devalued yourself as an employee and you've devalued and you've devalued your, your system. So, you know, yes, can tech be overwhelming? Absolutely. But if you do it in chunks and you do it and understand the timeline that it takes to execute that, that's key. And that's the other thing too. I'd say just project planning and the timeline fill, that overwhelming sense. Everybody wants it yesterday. I want all of this now. Well, we all do. We want that instant gratification. That's what our world has taught us to be. But in some cases, these might be initiatives. They're not events. It's a strategic turnaround that might take course of a year. Yeah, technically, I could switch on the switch, but it's going to be so disruptive to the operation that we would blow up our world. We would kill relationships. We would, you know, it would be catastrophic to the business. So that's why I always say incrementally roll it out, plan for success and be nimble enough to change if conditions change as you're going through that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so so much just went through my mind from from years back. <laughs> I mean, really, so uh, so much. Um, if you had any piece of, you know, like, I, I, first of all, there's been a lot of advice. So, I, and I guess I could ask you, like, you know, if you got one piece of advice for anyone listening out there, but really, 
you know, for other IT directors, other IT managers, CTOs, CIOs listening out there, is there anything real particular or unique about yourself that you've been able to do or figure out or, or you know, fall upon by mistake that would be very valuable to them? Well, know your value, right? That's first and foremost. Know your value, right? And if you know your value, make sure you can back it up. Talking and walking are two different things. And I've seen, you know, and I've helped out other directors that, you know, making a lot of money and I couldn't even go to the CEO and say, yeah, you deserve that, right? Because, you know, you're, everything's outsourced and you're just sitting there and you get a break fix once in a while, right? Like make sure you're taking a proactive approach and you're making yourself sticky, right? That's key, right? You want to make sure you're invaluable to the business. Uh, you know, that that's key. The other is, you know, don't be afraid to learn how to communicate. If, you know, I, I've, I've always said this, you know, to the programmers that are mine, like a lot of them are typical, right? Um, they like to sit in front of their computer. They don't like to go out, right? They're not very good in social arenas. You know, I'll put it to you this way. Everybody values a degree, right? Oh, I went to Harvard. I went to MIT. Everybody wants the pedigree there, right? That is going to lose value over time because so many people can learn on YouTube and Google and all these things today, these skills, right? That normally you would have to go to college to get. The next major capital point in, in executives and that world is going to be your emotional intelligence and your ability to finesse and relate in that arena. If you can do technology and you can do the talk, right, and be able to articulate the solution, show the value, now you become the unicorn because you can do both. You can do the tech and say to the programmers, I know all the geeky stuff here. And then when I go into that arena, I can, and that's what I do. That's what I, I call myself a professional translator. So I'm able to go to the techs and say, listen, here's what we got to do. I know how to do it because I can do it, but you guys are better at it me. So you're going to go program it. And I'm going to keep the, the guys in the tower here off your back. I'm going to say, here, here's going to be your output. And, you know, in my role, I've done the, the due diligence to know that when I say it's going to, it's going to deliver, it's going to deliver. And that's where you've got to be integrated into your vendors. You've got to have strategic relationships. If you are not part of that conversation and you're just throwing it over the wall, like you said earlier, Phil, you're going to get the throw over the wall effect. That's so that's like kind of, that's really deep, man. When you say know your value, it means like, no, literally you need to know no. what can output very specifically. It's not just like, Hey, right. know you're important. You're valuable. Like, you know, <laughs> it's not just like this kind of soft thing. It's like really, it's no specific. Right. If we, think about it. And, and, and I, and everybody says, well, you're replaceable, right? You're, you're a number on the balance sheet. And unfortunately that is very true, right? If all of a sudden the revenue is out of that business, what's going to be the, the chopping block there? What's the CEO going to have to do to preserve the company if they can? They're going to start cutting heads. And what you want to make sure is that you're like third to last. <laughs> you know, it's the CEO, CFO, COO, and then you. Right. I've been there. I've been there where a company's been sold or getting liquidated or getting ready to get sold to someone else. And we're like, what happened to all these people? What happened to these people? And I can remember being like on the last kind of skeleton crew and being like, oh. And, and it's funny you say that. So, like yeah. acquisitions, that's a big thing happening in our arena right now. Acquisitions are crazy. So for me, yeah. I, you know, knowing that that's going to happen by me being in this, in this new company, I can help companies in my industry. So as they get bought up and regionalized, yeah. I can help them with it and just stay agnostic. So that's why I created my own business too. With yeah. you. But, uh, like, but yeah. even if you get laid off in the first round, like, like, don't be like, Oh man, I got laid off the companies. This, I mean, no, that means that you were with the wrong company. You're with the layoff company. Like, you know, that's, it's, it just, that's the reality. That's and the that's reality. Right. So you got to know that's going to happen, Phil, right? That, like, I mean, that is inevitable. Companies it will happen. Be sold, yeah. Right. So, you know, and if you go in thinking that like your cushy W2 job is going to get you, you know, it's going to give you the security. It's a false sense of security. And I've learned that. And that's where for me, I went, I'm in the same risk pattern as it being a business owner, as I was as a W2 employee. It's the same. The only difference now is that I get to control my own fate and I'm not going to be selling out unless I sell my company, right? It's mm -hmm. somebody's going to be selling it underneath me. And, mm -hmm. you know, that, that to me gives me more security, ironically, even though I have a higher risk now owning my own company. Yeah. And you, you really do still work for people. You work for your customers, you work for your vendors, you work for all these other people. Anyone that thinks when you quit your, your job and you go open your own company that you're not working for anyone anymore, you're like so wrong. <laughs> no, no, it's, it, you know, but it's exciting. It's, it's been a, you know, as a three week startup right now, it's been very busy and uh, you know, we're helping out the state of California with uh, COVID 
testing and distribution there and, and some other states I'm in to help with that, right? And the pharmacies now bolting on to do that. And, you know, this is kind of a, a case in point where, you know, it's been a hell of a ride from the career. You know, like I said, I went to software, I went to, mm-hmm. you know, um, I went through that track. Then I got into, you know, the logistics space found me at SDSRX and then Stallion. So mm-hmm. my whole thing was, is I would look at every three years and I would reevaluate too, Phil, is I would say, okay, where am I at? Am I pigeonholed? And what people don't realize is that once you're in that role with a company, your likelihood of making more money isn't going to get there quicker because you're already at a number that they value at. So the only way is they're either going to give you the raise or you're going to have to move to get the number that you know you deserve from the next party. And people get stuck in that, thinking that they're going to get that that number that they feel that they need to hit from their current employer and probably won't ever happen just because they've already set your value. And yeah, they'll give you some raises, but you're a line item. It's going to be like the, Hey, you've meets expectations, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be pennies. The, what can you do for, we're going to end with this. What can you do for logistics companies in the United States? So, um, we are the specialists, right? We're the experts. So we're, we're essentially leveraging our network, as I mentioned, um, strategic partners, like with uh, teamwork desk, Zoho, e-courier, um, you know, Lenovo, all of these different platforms and providers so that we can help come in and and essentially be the outsourced IT group that is specialized for logistics. So, you know, yeah, there's there's a lot of MSPs out there, right? We're going to do your break fix. We're going to do your support patching. That to me is part of the equation. But what we're trying to do is fill a need in our space um, that's been a void for a long time. There's no one doing it in our niche. And uh, there's over, you know, 3,000 couriers in the country. And uh, they need help. So we're here to help fill them that void. And, you know, we're trying to do it on every level. We're trying to do it from, uh, you know, hey, you need us for some project work. You have a strategic app or you need some help that we've specialized in doing and have done it before. We can come in and help you as a project. We can do T&E. You need something you know, done on the fly. Great. Or we can do your outsourced IT and we can be your, your support desk and also help, you know, create the suite of applications and essentially show you how to cook the cake that we've now known as the gold standard that we've made. And, uh, mm. and that's what we're trying to do here is, you know, reduce costs, bring it to um, an affordable level for these guys that are cash, you know, cash strapped in the logistics space and get them the, the Ferrari they've always wanted. And that's what mm. we're trying to bring. Beautiful. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate the time, Phil. Thanks again for, uh, for everything. You have a great podcast and, I, uh, I definitely recommend for everybody to continue, continually listen. And, uh, you know, this is, these type of conversations are what I look, I look at your podcast every day pretty much to see, you know, what other folks are saying. So very informative film. Thanks for, uh, for giving me the platform. Thank you.